2,000 years ago, eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth poured into the streets of Jerusalem with an incredible message that Jesus had risen from the dead. Within approximately a month, well over 10,000 people in that city had joined a movement known as The Way. We talked a bit about it last week and I put up this photograph of uh, Allianz Stadium as it was and when that stadium was full, it would be the same as the size of a church that had sprung up within three weeks in the city of Jerusalem, comparatively speaking. So the delicate balance of power that existed between the leaders of the temple and Rome was suddenly a little bit shaky. And the leaders of the temple were extremely concerned and upset at this, what they saw as resistance. So the disciples were arrested and flogged and arrested and let go with a warning and arrested and continued to preach boldly in the temple courts. So that's where we were last time and uh, you might want to go back and watch the YouTube uh, We Are The Church series from Wollongong Salvos. So then along comes the next uh, major element of the story is Stephen. Stephen preaches a sermon, he's arrested and he, and he preaches a sermon in defense of Jesus and the message of the Jesus followers and he is stoned to death. Not stoned the way we would talk about it today. He was stoned to death. And following that, we read in... Uh, so if you want to read that, I really suggest that you look up Acts chapter 7 this week. It is a very, very important foundational sermon that explains the message and purpose and being of the church, the ecclesia, the group of followers of Jesus. Then Acts chapter 8 begins this way. That set off, so the, the, the um, martyrdom of Stephen set off a terrific persecution of the church. It's like suddenly everybody was given permission to persecute these Christ followers, members of the way, as it was called. Uh, the believers were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, all that is, uh, except for the apostles. Uh, good and brave men buried Stephen, giving him a solemn funeral, not many dry eyes that day. Uh, one of the key members of the persecution of the Christians was a guy named Saul, who was present at the stoning of Stephen, cheering on those who threw rocks. But then Saul, Saul was converted. Incredible. Literally, he saw the light, which is where the phrase comes from. And you need to, if you have not read this story, you need to read Acts chapter 9 and read the story of Saul's conversion. He does uh, tell his own conversion story two more times in the book of Acts, uh, I think in the book of Acts, or later on in his writings, um, and you get a, a couple more details, but basically the whole story is there in Acts chapter 9, a key story for how God works with those who would even consider him an enemy. Well, he became a believer, um, and despite the skepticism of the other Christians in the area, he joined the church at Antioch. Antioch became a center of church life and, and things after, you know, most of the Jews, uh, most of the followers of the way, the Christians had scattered out of Jerusalem following the persecution, following Stephen's martyrdom. Okay, so we know where we are. We're in Antioch, a northern city. 
uh, where Paul has become a member of the church. Um, he spent, well, we don't know exactly what he did, but for 10 to 14 years, he spent time growing and learning and, and planning things. And after that, he set off on a number of journeys across uh, modern-day Turkey, Armenia and Greece um, and a number of other countries where he planted little churches, little ecclesias, little gatherings in places like Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth and Thessaloniki. All these places we know because he wrote letters back to them from a prison cell in Rome where he was awaiting a trial in front of Caesar. Uh, those letters are now part of our New Testament so they are pretty important. Saul was an incredibly important guy. He was, uh, tradition tells us, executed in 67 uh, CE by the Emperor Nero, although it's probably irrelevant to our discussion today. Because way before that, in fact, just after his first missionary journey, just after his first trip, he comes back to Antioch and he's telling them about what happened and a, contro a controversy, controversy, controversy arises. I've been debating with myself as to how to pronounce that. How do you pronounce controversy? I don't want to be controversial about it, but how are you supposed to pronounce it? This, contro this controversy would plague the church pretty much until today. And this is the question that they sought to answer. How good does a person have to behave to be part of the kingdom of God? How good does a person have to behave or continue to behave to be part of the church? You can see why this question still comes up, doesn't it? And this is the first, this is the, the topic of discussion of the first Jerusalem Council. And the year was about 40 or 48 AD or CE. So Paul was running around inviting all these non-Jews to be part of the church and they came, they believed, but they didn't act right. Sounds like the history of the Salvation Army, right? William Booth was running around the east end of London, preaching, people turning to faith, turning up to their local churches. They didn't act right. They didn't smell right. They didn't, didn't know the drill. They weren't accepted there, so they gathered together. And now we have the, the Salvation Army as a denomination. Um, they believed, but they didn't act right. It was disruptive and it got up people's noses. Many Jews assumed that since Jesus was Jewish and fulfilled Jewish prophecy, then to become a Christian, you had to first become a Jew. My assumption or, or, or my belief is, generally speaking, if people have a bad experience with church or a bad experience with a, a group of Christ followers, it generally comes down to this issue. For those of us who've been Christians for a lot longer, we have to wrestle with this question too, because the Bible does contain moral information. It does contain, particularly in the Old Testament, instruction and law. So how do we, as, as churches, as groups of Christian believers, approach these laws? What bearing do they have? What does it mean for Jesus to say, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it? 
Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 15 and see the record of the first council of Jerusalem that takes place around this issue. Um, I will admit there is a slight adults-only warning to this text, as you shall see in verse chapter 1. Certain individuals came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Aha. Anyone see a problem with this? Anyone think there were any men in the new members' classes? Probably not. Honey, you go ahead. I'm I'm just going to wait in the car. It's a pretty high standard, isn't it, when you think about it? Salvation by surgery. You hear about the rabbi who offered discounts at bar mitzvahs? He offered half off. I was told I shouldn't tell this joke. Do you know about the rabbi who was super expensive? He was a ripoff. Okay, now we have that out of the way. You know when there's a joke that lodges in your head and you kind of just have to say it to get out of the way? You might regret it. We'll see what emails I get, see? There's a pretty high standard though, right? And Paul and Barnabas, who'd been involved in this first missionary journey and, and this reaching of all these, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, this brought them into sharp dispute and debate with them. Paul had been teaching and preaching salvation that came through faith in Jesus the Christ as the Son of God risen from the dead. That's it. Nothing else. So they stood up. And had an argument. Paul and Barnabas were therefore appointed, along with some of the other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders and to ask the question. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the ecclesia, and the apostles, and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. They told them all about these Gentiles that had, that had come to faith, all these non-Jews who believed and in whom the Holy Spirit resided. Then, verse 5, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Okay, so setting aside the surgery, they're saying all the law of Moses, right? There's 613 laws listed in the books of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, um, Numbers, you know, only the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And they, they took out from there 613 laws, plus they had other scriptural and, and sacred writings, which defined a lot of other cultural practices, all considered to be the laws of Moses. I mean, how long do you think it would take for someone to learn all of that? To change your lifestyle in such a way? I think most people will be dead before they could become Christians. After much discussion, verse 7, Peter got up and addressed them. 
Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Okay, so the story of Peter's revelation and his calling to preach to the Gentiles, you probably should put Acts chapter 10 on your reading list. It's a very important story where God gives Peter a vision that does away with the requirements of the ancient Jewish laws. Done. Complete. Finished. Does away with the ancient Jewish laws and calls Peter to preach to the non-Jewish people. And this is why Peter is considered to be the founder of the church in Rome and the Roman Catholic Church considers St. Peter the uh, founder. And it's also why we are not forbidden to eat a nice seafood platter whenever we like. Which, of course, if we were Jews, we couldn't do. So there you go. Be happy. God, who knows the heart, says Peter, showed us that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. Just like he did it to us. He didn't discriminate between us and them. He purified their hearts by faith, not their lives, not their behaviors, not their orientations, not anything, just their hearts. God accepted them as proved by the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They were still clearly Gentiles, non-Jews, were all the normal non-Jewish habits that the Jewish people considered disgusting and abominable. They still had all those stuff. And do you think it was a problem for Peter? Do you think he set himself up as a, a moral policeman? No. It wasn't his problem to figure out. God had given him the Holy Spirit. That's it. Done. Everything else is up to God. He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He said, None of us can keep the 613 rules. Rules. What makes you think they would? And we've been brought up to it. No. We believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Peter uh, sits down and, and James, the brother of Jesus. Now, if you want proof that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. Think about this for a second. His brother thought he was the Son of God. How many of you have siblings that you would possibly come anywhere near the idea of thinking that they were the Son of God? Yeah, it's not. Uh, uh. So, can you, imagine, can you imagine growing up with Jesus, the elder brother, and thinking that he was the son of God. Like, how would you come to that conclusion as a, as a sibling? How could you possibly come to that conclusion unless he demonstrated it? Isn't that interesting? Anyway, that's what's the point. Anyway, so James becomes the leader of the church in, um, in Jerusalem after Jesus uh, is gone. And he says this, It is my judgment. Therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, 
We should write to them. We should tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. That's it. Three laws. Well, what you might consider laws. They're not really laws, but he said we should suggest that you do this. Um, they go on for the next nine verses, formulating and, and creating this letter that they will send and will become a formal, almost document that defines the practices of the early church. Three kind of rules in here, um, mostly for the sake of unity, the, the strangled animals and polluted by idols and things like that. The, this is all because, um, and sexual immorality, all these things were associated with pagan worship practice. And the church, the, the little ecclesias all around the place were generally meeting in the synagogues uh, owned by Jewish people, you see. And for the sake of just unity, for the sake of not offending the Jews, their, their rule says, don't eat meat strangled by idols, don't eat meat, you know, don't eat things offered to other idols. Does that, do you see why these rules were important for them? In those early days when they were meeting together in, in another person's place, um, whenever, I ha whenever we have people who meet in this building, they uh, abstain from bringing alcohol on site. They abstain from um, holding raffles and, and other gambling practices on site simply because we are the Salvation Army and that's what we stand for. And so they, 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 they do that for us. They do that out of respect for us and what we do and what we stand for. Does that make sense? So these rules were exactly the same thing because they were meeting in the synagogues the houses of worship of the Jewish people. The law about sex would be a good idea though, right? What if our culture adopted God's law as it relates to sex? No rape, no abused children, no adultery, no teenage pregnancies, no teenage prostitution, there'd be a decrease in domestic violence. Pretty good outcomes, I reckon, if we could. Well, they agreed, all those present, and the letter was written, and they sent a delegation with the letter to Antioch. Verse 30, so they were sent off and went to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and they delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message, and I want to say, especially the men. So the issue was addressed. Followers of Jesus were not to be moral policemen like leaders of other religions. They were different. And the difference is grace. But the issue surfaces repeatedly. So in our generation, we must guard against this propensity for the church to drift or decompose into a state in which we do that. In fact, there are three ways I think this story shows us how the church naturally drifts and decomposes from its original state. Number one, there is a drift towards insiders and away from others. The Jewish believers were more comfortable around people who lived like they did. And you know what? So am I. I mean, I'm not more comfortable around Jews, although they're all right. I mean, I'm more comfortable around people who live like me, who generally wear the same clothes, generally go to the same places, generally drink the same coffee, occasionally some tea drinkers as well. Like generally, you know, 
I'm much more comfortable with people who are like me. And, and so are you. We clump together like a five-year-old soccer team. It's the way we are. But is it the way we should be? You know, it's also natural in leadership to cater to the paying customer. The insiders. Oh, let me tell you, insiders are the ones who complain. I've never gotten a complaint about our service or our music or our children's programs from anyone outside the church. I've never had it. Doesn't happen. Do get them from inside the church. Inside the group of believers. You never get a complaint from people who've never been here. It's just the way it is. I don't know why. But church, the church, isn't the church just for church people. It isn't just for people who know the drill. A healthy church is a growing church. Big means nothing in and of itself. Growing means everything. Secondly, the drift exists, like this text really pointed out, towards law and it drifts away from grace. The Jews thought in terms of categories. Jews are in, Gentiles are out. So they had, this, they had policies and, and standards about who was in and who was out. Really high standards, as we said before, involving surgery. They drew a line. And as, as every group of people does this, particularly churches, well, maybe particularly churches because I'm involved in one and I kind of see it, but we, we gravitate towards categories and, and policies and, and standards. We have standards around here. Have you heard that? It's not good. It was a time, for instance, when divorced people were maligned and mistreated in churches. Anyone remember that time? Still true today. Some churches. I've done weddings where I've been asked to come and do the wedding. Um, and we, they, they wanted to do the wedding in, a, in another church. And the guys in the other church found out that one of the people that I was doing the wedding for had been divorced. And they said, no, you can't do it in this church. That was less than 15 years ago. Still happens. It's ridiculous. We have standards. When someone says we have standards, just run. Look, it's messy. It'd be nice to categorize people. It'd be nice to see who these people are in and out. That makes things clear cut and easy, but it's. There is a drift towards law and away from grace. Thirdly, this shows us, this text, that there was a drift and always has been and there always will be a drift towards preserving what is rather than advancing what could be. It's particularly challenging for us in the Salvation Army in Australia at the moment. There's so much talk of change. It's uncomfortable. No one doesn't, we don't know what the future looks like. We, we don't know how how we're going to have to do this process or that process. And it's uncomfortable. 
but we are advancing. For which I praise God. The Jews in our story were trying to protect their God-given traditions and laws. That's fine, you can't blame them. They'd had them for a thousand plus years. But in the process, it got on the way of what God was actually doing. They were serving the created rather than the creator. God has not called us to preserve anything. It's about impacting the generation of people. And that generation, they'll be us one day. They'll have a different set of leaders and God will continue to advance. So, where do we come to land? First, I want to say in conclusion that we continue and must swim hard against this tendency to drift, the tendency to decompose. We also have to work hard to not be a church where we try and get people to fit in. Have you heard that before? The opposite of belonging is fitting in. We're not about people fitting in. See, when we ask people to fit in, it requires them to change their shape in some way, to, to, to change themselves in, in some way, to, to slot correctly into a place that we believe they should take up. It's not right. We need to make sure people understand and know that they belong regardless of their shape, regardless of what slots we think they have to fill, regardless of what... Sh- or behaviours, or lifestyles, or whatever we think they should have. The text says they need to know they belong and don't have to fit in. We're going to sing the song Calvary. Because I want to remember this verse again today. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, that's it. That's all you need to do. Every day, get up, believe in him. 2,000 years ago, something happened for the benefit of everybody. God revealed himself in the person of Jesus. He died on a cross as the final sacrifice, the culmination of all religion, the fulfillment of all those laws, because they are now all forgiven. All those religious rules are not important for the kingdom of God's fulfillment. Jesus came to remove the sting of your sin. He came to remove the condemnation you feel when you do the wrong thing. He came to undo the effect of shame in your life. To wipe it out. To leave you free to love Him and to love others. He came to bring dignity to everyone. From every race, every gender, every body type, every orientation, every experience. He came to bring life because every single person 
It's important to God. And anyone who wants to may believe. And the Holy Spirit will come, infuse their lives, and bring them life. My prayer is that we would stop for a moment as we sing this song. That we would consider the way we feel about others. How often do we think in terms of of standards and, and categories and how often do we think we really just need to get this person to this state so they can really fit in? How often do we stop and think, oh, this person's been a a part of our church now for a a certain amount of time, but they're still behaving in that way. They they really should have fitted in better than that by now. Acts chapter 15, the apostles, Paul, quite clearly say that that is not the way of the church. Is it our way? Is it how we think? Let's reflect for a moment and think and pray. The Savior alone carried the cross. For all of my debts, he paid the cost. It's complete. Forever I'm free. Calvary covers it all. Would you like to, would you like to stand and sing?